Hey everyone, it's Josh. Welcome to Life on Side B. Today we're going to be doing something special. We're going to be talking with Peter Volk about his talk at Revoice on theology. And I wanted to take this moment really quickly before we start to say that in this conversation, you're going to be hearing us telling you to go watch his talk uh, um, that happened at Revoice on the Revoice website before it goes down at the end of August. Well, this episode is being published on the last day of August. Originally, this episode was planned to be published earlier, but I ended up getting sick. And don't worry, it was not Corona, thank God. So I was just finally able to get the editing done for this episode to publish it now. So if you are listening to this episode on the day of airing, you still have time to go watch uh, the talks at Revoice if you have not. If you have, awesome. If you haven't, you can still go over and register for the conference and watch it before it goes down at the end of today. So make sure you do that. Not just Peter's talk, all of the talks. It was amazing. It's so worth it. And you still have time. So I just wanted to encourage you all about that before we get into it today. So with that, let's head into the episode. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back for another episode of Life on Side B. It is good to be coming back. And um, I am here joined by our very own Grant Hartley. Hello, Grant. Hey, hello. We haven't heard your voice in a while. Well, it's been a minute. Yes, it's been. Yes, it has. You did the one you did the one Patreon episode, but on the regular podcast, we haven't yeah. heard you in a little bit. So I'm so yeah, glad I'm you're excited here. Excited to us. be back. Yeah. Yeah. Today's gonna be a really good topic because um we are joined by a familiar voice on the podcast from season one, the one and only Peter Volk. Hey Peter. Oh hey. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> glad to be <laughs> Yes. I'm so glad to be able to talk today. You know, for everyone listening, for all of you who were listening to Revoice back last month uh first of all if you haven't listened to revoice you need to go ahead and go you can still register for it and actually rewatch it is that correct can you still do that i think it's open till the end of august okay i think that's true all right well if it is do it if for some reason you're listening after that well you should have no <laughs> <laughs> um it was a really really good conference um i honestly really enjoyed it what did how did well you two were there um so you guys were both in person how did it feel for you guys being in person at re- a virtual revoice <laughs> yeah it was uh maybe bittersweet for me i definitely missed the the in-person fellowship and i was mm. there with some of the other people speaking but it wasn't the same as the big real revoice and I know for my friends back here in Nashville who weren't there, it wasn't the same. Um, yeah. So bummed about that. Um, it's not the same without a, a real audience and without being able to have discussion back and forth. And, you know, the, the line of one-on-ones afterward, I, I missed mm-hmm. that. Um, but also like so glad that so many people had access to this that wouldn't have normally. Uh, yes. You know, so many parents who like in past years, they couldn't have traveled to get to this, but they were able to listen in this time pastors and youth pastors are usually busy with summer stuff 
were able to join in, you know, gay people from across the world who wouldn't have been able to fly to St. Louis. So, you know, I don't, maybe the trade-off's worth it. Uh, we'll see what happens next year, but uh, yeah, bittersweet. Yeah. yeah. And what about for you, Grant? Um, well, I was kind of lucky in that I live in St. Louis. And so I got to visit the place where it was filmed. Uh, and I got to sit on the couch in front, uh, the very front row. I mean, there was only one row, actually, because it was just the couch. You um, also got to sit on I, the couch and be in it because I saw your face. Oh, that's true. Uh, I think I think I uh, made people uncomfortable enough that they let me in front of the camera. <laughs> <laughs> I guilted them into it. No. Um, yeah, it was it was fun to be able to see some of the people in person um, and I guess to be able to react to what they were saying as it was happening. Um, mm. I, I, I was busy live tweeting basically the whole thing. Yeah. Um, so that was, that was really, really fun. Uh, and yeah, it, the reach this year was incredible. It was like 1500 yeah. uh, people were registered from 20 something, I think countries maybe more uh, mm-hmm. which is just mind-blowing last year it was like 400 people i think uh so just exponential i think it was like 600 growth. last year wasn't it 400 the first year maybe something? maybe you're right yeah, yeah i think that makes sense mm-hmm. yeah either it way was, it was, it just was like huge a huge jump yeah it was it was very it was fun for me it was interesting because watching it as a participant you know, on the TV, I really didn't have very high expectations because I was like, I, I've been going to a few virtual conferences this year that I was supposed to be at mm-hmm. physically and kind of like, okay, cool. This is, you know, another video I'm going to sit down and watch. And I honestly wasn't even sure if I was going to watch everything just because I've, I've, I've kind of been virtual conference burned out a little bit, <laughs> kind of just watching mm-hmm. on TV. But yeah. I think what really helped with it was, um, was, definitely the tweets being able to at least be able to interact with some people in that way virtually and like the chat that was going on during it and being able to see people's responses yeah and i think it was also really nice that a few a few people kind of coordinated just off official like non-officially some like zoom calls in between the talks which Mm. for me was really nice as someone to like hop on and i hopped on with melinda and a few other people and got to talk and and we got to all debrief about okay so what did you think of this one or what did you think of that and i didn't get to get into all the zoom calls but i i felt like that was a really nice kind of thing that some people did that of just getting into these small little zoom calls um in between and, and get to debrief with people so you felt like i felt even being here that I was able to, and the cool thing for me was that because it was here in the home, my parents actually watched some of it with me. Yeah. So that was fun. Cause I just put it on the TV and they were like, what are you watching? And so I was like, well, this is revoice, which I've told you guys about. So um, yeah. it was, it was also fun that we had like with you and Henry and, and Becca, we had three co-hosts yes. from the conference. Yes, we did. <laughs> from the podcast of the conference. And then on top of that, I kept looking at everyone that was there. I'm like, we've had them on the podcast. We've had them on the podcast. Uh-huh. We've had them on the podcast. I was like, I'm loving yeah. this. Like, I I enjoyed that. That was that was that was fun for me. The lineup this year was so crazy. It was just so good. Yeah. 
What were you I saying was going to ask jokingly that are you sure the life on side B podcast is not just like the gay celibate cabal running everything? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> oh. We just are behind all yeah. of the scenes. Coordinate. No, yeah. But the cool, the cool news that came out of Revoice is that our very own Becca is now the executive director <laughs> of Revoice. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and that is that super was... exciting. She's, she's going to kill it. I have, I have uh, no doubt she's going to be yeah. so good at that job. Yeah. And in fact, she's going to be on the next episode. So we are definitely going to be talking with her about that. Like mm-hmm. that's on my priority list, but um, yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So to get into it, first of all, we are going to be here talking with Peter about one of his talks um, from Revoice, especially mm-hmm. on theology. Um, it was a talk that I'm so glad you did, Peter, because I don't think we talk about theology enough in this conversation sometimes. Um, sometimes we can talk about it too much, so other times we don't talk about it enough. And I, I thought it was really mm-hmm. good. But there was also there was a lot of conversation afterwards. And so we wanted to kind of engage in that, you know, like you said, because there's not these off of the stage conversations that normally happen at Revoice where people get to talk about it. At least this can maybe serve as one of those opportunities. But before we get into it, I did have one announcement that I wanted to share with everyone here. Okay, everyone. So my future self is interrupting my past self because I actually have more information now than I did when we recorded originally. And I want to make sure you get all of the details. We are going to do something new to finish out the season and you are invited to be part of it. If you love this podcast, if it fascinates you, if you are interested by what we talk about, you are not going to want to miss this. Mark your calendars Saturday. November 14th, we are launching the first ever Bee Chats. The Bee Chats is a virtual all-day event where we will be talking about real issues that have been discussed in the podcast as well as elsewhere that affect the lives of LGBT plus or same-sex attracted Christians who hold a historic Christian view of marriage and sexuality. This is not simply an event where you listen to speakers talk. This will be a place where you get to interact ask live questions, and discuss how these issues apply to your life or context. The idea is each year we will talk about three topics or chats and discuss a variety of perspectives from Side B Christians on those topics. This year, the topics of our three chats are going to be the gender conversation within Side B, coming out as LGBT and Christian, and finally, viable Side B relationships. You can go to lifeonsidebe.com and a pop-up will appear to direct you to the registration page for the event. You can also go to our social media as well as the episode notes for this episode and find the link for the registration page there. I am so excited for us to be able to have this time to close out the season where we will be able to grow and learn together from all around the world. So go ahead and register today. You won't want to miss it. And with that, I'll give it over back to my past self to continue. That's really my only announcement for today. And so with that, let's head in to the conversation. Um, So I guess to start, Peter, um, you know, like I said, this is, Theology related to this is something we some many times do not talk about sure. too much. Um, and I was interested that, you know, when you when you spoke on it, you took a little bit more of a response approach 
two different affirming theological arguments. Um, I, I would love to hear more of like what what led you to take that um, format pursuit. If you can talk a little bit more of that. Yeah. So, um, or if you want to kind of give an overview for people who may not have heard your talk as well, if you want to kind of give a overview about what you talked about. Yeah. So uh, basically, I I responded to the nine most convincing arguments for a progressive sexual ethic um, from the perspective of a traditional sexual ethic. Um, but the, the title was uh, Arguments Aren't Enough because the key point I, I made over and over again was um, a, a convincing argument for a traditional sexual ethic or convincing responses to the convincing arguments for a progressive sexual ethic that's not enough because mm, yeah. um, gay Christians stewarding their sexualities according to a traditional sexual ethic are still experiencing bad fruit. And of that, and not because they're not trying hard enough, but because few of our churches mm -hmm. are places where gay people can actually thrive according to God's wisdom. And so, yeah. uh, you know, if something is true, it should also be good and beautiful. And a lot of gay Christians stewarding their sexualities according to a traditional sexual ethic aren't experiencing good or beautiful. So there's work to be done. And if, if you know, the audience for my uh, talk was particularly pastors, uh, straight pastors and leaders. And so what I wanted them to hear was making better arguments isn't enough. If you want to convince people, particularly gay people, to steward their sexualities according to a traditional sexual ethic, you've got to offer them something good and beautiful. And there's work yeah. done. Yeah, because your your talk was to, for context for everyone who's who's listening. Your your talk on theology came during the leaders kind of section of the conference, correct? So, which was more geared towards pastors and pastors and everyone that was listening. Correct. Yeah, it was during the day right. on Friday, and, and while it doesn't say, you know, here's the space for straight pastors, um, it's generally understood that a, that a vast majority of the the people who show up for the the pastors and leaders track are going to be straight. So it's particularly for that audience. Um, so yeah. yeah. How did you come across uh, or or structure your talk? Like you you listed a bunch of uh, th some of the most convincing arguments you've heard. Um, where did you get those arguments from? Did you just hear them, or was there a resource that you looked at? Yeah, so there's a, a, a couple of different uh, really popular level books that are part story, part uh, kind of theological argument for a progressive sexual ethic uh, out there. Um, and so in addition to doing the work I do with Equip, um, I'm also a licensed professional counselor. I meet with individuals, uh, gay people trying to navigate uh, faith and sexuality. And I've had a number of clients who are kind of in this space in between side A and side B, and they're trying to make sense of that. And they've invited me to help them explore that theologically. And often what we do is we read one of those books together. Uh, you know, uh, oh wow, Justin Lee's Torn, um, God and the Great Christian by Matthew Vines. We'll read them together and we'll discuss what's convincing here, what's not convincing here. And so to be honest, the first outline for this talk, I wrote a, a while ago. Um, because I had a close friend, um, or sorry, I had a client who, um, kind of was in between A and B and, and, and really feeling like he was going to move to A and it was reading some of those books. And, you know, previous to this, I had had both friends and clients who I felt like I was, 
I was too meek. I was too afraid to make a strong case for a traditional sexual ethic and against a progressive sexual ethic. And, and they ended up um, adopting a more progressive sexual ethic. And, and I ended up seeing more painful consequences in their lives uh, downstream. And so, I don't know, just this most recent time, I was like, okay, this time I'm going to try something different. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a more, a stronger case, both for a traditional sexual ethic, but, but also against a progressive sexual ethic. And I think this is why um, I address this topic in the way I did. Um, at Revoice, we often hear uh, talks, we often hear messages of what is beautiful about a traditional sexual ethic, right? A winsome appeal for, for side B. Um, but we seem to kind of back away from responding to the most convincing arguments for side A, right? We're, we're quick to mm-hmm. push against the arguments for side X, understandably. Mm. But we seem to be slow to yeah. push against the arguments for side A, which in my opinion is just as dangerous, but in different ways. So yeah, so, so long story short, the outline for this talk first started when I was, I was reading one of these books with, uh, with, with a client and trying to respond thoroughly to, um, to that, the, book, the argument in that book for a progressive sexual ethic. And that's where these nine points uh, came from. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I love that like format because I've done that before sometimes with some friends of mine who were kind of wondering about theology and and we kind of took a similar approach of, hey, let's pick up some books and let's read them together. And and I think many times when we're talking with people that that's some of the best ways that we can do it is engage, like, I think many times pastors want to simply tell LGBT people like, this is what you need to believe rather than sitting down with all of the information with them and being like, let's look at it together. Like, let's go through this, you know, this book or that book. Or, and so I love that approach that you took with your friend. Yeah. I also love that, like, it, you don't have to be afraid to engage with sources that come from a different ideological camp. And you can, mm-hmm. like, you can actually engage with them and you don't have to be afraid that it's going to, like, persuade you. Like, I, I think that's really powerful to enter into the conversation by looking at all the information. Um, and being able to engage with it. I think that's really wise. Yeah. So after, oh, was someone about to say something? Well, I was just going to say, uh, yeah, I, th- I know my advice for some of the people I meet with is um, a lot of these uh, books or, or, or podcasts for a progressive sexual ethic, um, they're, they're very well done. They're very um, emotionally powerful. They're very clever. They're sometimes, mm-hmm. I would say, not the most intellectually honest. And so... I do, I encourage my clients or people I'm mentoring to engage with those sources uh, when they can do it with someone, particularly if this, this person exploring the theology is in a really vulnerable place and they're going to be really susceptible to maybe uh, the, the emotional appeals um, or, or intellectually dishonest uh, appeals. Um, so yeah, don't be afraid of the truth, right? Ask the tough questions. Um, and sometimes we're people maybe aren't in the, the safest places to be challenged and to think yeah. really critically about things. So there's a, there's a balance there. Um, but yeah, I definitely, the, those, those who just kind of completely avoid any of the strong arguments for a progressive sexual ethic seem to be the people that then years later, it all just comes crashing down because what they believe yeah. was never carefully tested. Um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Well, and, and it's I true because we. Oh, go ahead. Well, I think sometimes we can let a, a 
traditional sexual ethic be supported mainly by fear mm. and not by any active engagement. <laughs> uh, and part of that fear is, uh, is upheld by just an unwillingness to engage with any of any sources from another perspective. Yeah. Um, mm. So I think that's really encouraging um, that for, for you to, to engage with those sources. Yeah, and I, I think it's good because I, I think conversations like the, this are needed because if we're not having a dialogue, um, there's going to be like ultimately, if there's not a dialogue happening, then there's only one side voice being heard within the conversation that people are hearing in it. Like it's funny for my doctorate right now, um, I'm actually doing work on theology related to LGBT issues and all of that. And it's crazy because I had to create a list of resources for my, um, for my, my study. And mm -hmm. I had tons of affirming sources and I had tons of ex-gay sources. And I think I had like three deep theological side B sources. <laughs> like that was Dang. it. And it, there's not a lot. Yeah. There's there's so much of the, of the theology being done from the traditional perspective is very ex-gay. There's like, except for like people to be loved by, by Preston Sprinkle. And I mean, mm -hmm. I guess you could count Wesley Hill's book, but he doesn't really get into theology. He's more sharing his story. Um, yeah. There's not a ton. There's not, there's not these deep feel like books, like let's digest this theology from a traditional perspective that is not ex gay kind of thing. Well, and kind of getting into this, what, what would you say were, you know, as you gave this talk, what would you say the responses were like to your talk that you got? Um, so really positive, uh, particularly from, you know, the target audience, which was uh, straight pastors and leaders. You know, too often I see um, straight pastors and leaders like shy away from like a full-throated defense of a traditional sexual ethic and being willing to really address mm -hmm. the shortcomings of a progressive sexual ethic. Um, you know, and if they aren't convinced of what they believe, or they're embarrassed to talk about it, they aren't going to be churches that take any practical steps towards really hoarding side B gay Christians, really being a place where gay people mm -hmm. can thrive according to a traditional sexual ethic. So, so my hope was to embolden straight pastors uh, and, and leaders to take action for the benefit of gay people, um, but also point out that those better arguments weren't enough. And, and there was a lot of uh, positive responses from gay people as well. Um, some negative responses from uh, you know, side A gay people. Uh, I guess that's to be expected. Mm -hmm. um, and there were also some side B gay Christians who were a little put off. Um, and, and I guess I, I think it would be good for me to speak to that briefly. You know, it, it's difficult to speak to um, every audience well at the same time. And I probably could have said even more clearly at the beginning of the talk that this was particularly for straight uh, pastors and leaders. And that's why it was slotted in the pastors and leaders track. Um, but if there were any side B gay Christians who watched this talk, listened to this talk and were hurt by it, I am really sorry. Um, you know, too often we've heard straight pastors and parents argue with us about theology and ignore our pain. And if my talk triggered any of that, I am so sorry. Uh, like I do not want to add to that. I know that pain myself. I don't want to add to yours. Um, I hope that you saw me holding straight pastors and leaders accountable in the talk. Um, I hope you saw me pointing out the hypocrisy in the church. I hope you saw me uh, arguing that better arguments aren't enough. 
Um, but yeah, again, if there's any side B gay Christians who watch this talk and it caused them pain, I'm so sorry. Uh, you know, that absolutely wasn't my intention. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, um, well, if you don't mind sharing some of the, some of that feedback from side B people, what were some, of, what was some of the pushback you received? Well, I guess from side A or side B people, did anything stick out to you? Um, yeah, I mean, so I think first, um, I think for some side B people, uh, because uh, every time they share with a parent or a pastor, uh, side B gay people, every time they share with a parent or a pastor about how challenging, painful their life is, again, not because they're doing it poorly, but because they don't have structural support from their churches that they ought to have, or they're dealing with the pain of being yeah. in the closet for so long and the wounds that the, the closet inflicts. Too often, side B gay people go to pastors and parents, share about their pain, and the response they hear back is, wait a minute, are, are you not convinced of a, of a traditional sexual ethic anymore? You know, or, or you share mm. just for one moment, hey, I, I know this is true, um, but like, but does it have to be true? Is it really true? This is too painful. And, and the, yeah. the, the, the straight person doesn't respond by, by saying, you're right, this hurts. And if something is true, it should be good and beautiful. And there's work the church needs to do. No, instead, they like freak out that we're going to turn side A or something and then argue with us more. So I just think for a, lot of, a lot of people I heard mm -hmm. from just any talk about this that, that really digs into the details of the, the arguments mm -hmm. and kind of combats some of the maybe the side A arguments that some side B people who are hurting resonate with. Uh, it's just triggering. It reminds them of those painful conversations mm. they've had too many times before. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, and mm, I can honestly speak from, I, I can speak to that even as a person who, you know, I spent many, many years in the ex-gay world and it's, it, it does become hard because like, I remember many times hearing the like talks refuting, you know, um, affirming theology or as they would call it pro-gay theology in the ex-gay world um, <laughs> um, they would give these things of refuting it and and it can bring up PTSD especially for people who have experience in the ex-gay world of like oh my gosh this sounds so familiar you know because as you yeah. said and I love one thing that you talked about in the talk and you mentioned it earlier is that even in responding to these things the bigger things is as you as you had the title of it being uh, responding responding to affirming theology arguments is not enough and that if we're not creating a culture and we're not creating an environment within our theology that is allowing LGBT people to thrive, then it's not mm. enough just to have responses. And, and I think that like when I think so many LGBT people, especially side B LGBT people are afraid of engaging in theology because of the way theology has been used mm -hmm. as a weapon against us. And I like that you talked, you talked about that in your talk about how we, we have to make sure we're not using it as a weapon to just simply make LGBT people do what we want them to do. And like how, I, I think that's one of the healthy places that in this conversation, we have to find how to engage theology, but not use it as a weapon against LGBT people. And what, how, what do you think are some of the like primers of how we can be able to start having that kind of conversation? Yeah. So I think if we're talking about, uh, if we're asking this question about particularly straight pastors and parents, it's really hard for a side B gay Christian to see hypocrisy in their church or in their family when it comes to sexual ethics and sexual stewardship for all, and then take seriously 
any arguments for a traditional sexuality for gay people. Mm. Um, so yeah, my suggestion to straight pastors and parents is that before you start arguing for a traditional sexual ethic for gay people, um, are you taking seriously what the Bible has to say about sexual stewardship for all people? I think that's really important. <laughs> yeah, because because somehow convincing gay people to become more convinced of a traditional sexual ethic is not going to make them magically experience less pain from the church's poor support of gay people and celibate people and people mm. in mixed orientation marriage. That's just not how it works. So, you know, for the straight yeah. pastor and parent, I think that's my, that's my first suggestion is kind of take care of your own house, uh, your own uh, people who have the same story as you or coming from the same space as you um, and earn that credibility. Uh, I think if you're asking that question for side B gay Christians, honestly, you know, like once you're kind of convinced of a traditional sexual ethic, I don't see a point and spending time and energy and tears trying to like push the dial on your certainty from like 90% to 95% or a hundred percent or whatever, or from 80% to 95%. Like, I think our time is better spent focusing on how can we meet our intimacy needs in healthy ways? How can we get what we need to thrive according to God's wisdom? You know, knowing that the church might not get too much better in our lifetime. Uh, I think that's a better use of our time than trying to, to, to get ourselves to a hundred percent certain. Um, that's my personal opinion. Um, what do you think you, you talked a little bit about using theology, like not using theology as a weapon against LGBT people. Um, and you, you talked about how it's, um, it's easy to do when you talked about how important it is not to do that. What should be the goal or the focus when approaching theology about LGBT issues? Is there a goal beyond just figuring out um, what not to do or what to do sexually, like boundaries and stuff? What What's the guiding goal behind all that for you? Yeah, great question. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I think for me, like personally, when I was in middle school, the first question I was asking was like, is gay sex a sin? Um, it's the question yeah. we all ask. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's the question middle schoolers ask. That's not the question 40 year old pastors should be asking. Yeah. Um, because like, at least for me, when like I grew up, I realized that a much better use of my time and energy was focusing on the opposite question. Like, right. Not, not what is bad, but instead, what mm. did God deny me for? How did God order the world beautifully? What was I made for? Like, if I'm made for intimacy in the context of family, what are the best paths God has laid out for me to enjoy those? And focus on that. Focus on what I can say yes to. I mean, we've got so many different speakers at Revoice in different spaces in the side B world. Talk about, we've got to focus on the yes and not the no. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that should be the goal, the focus when we're approaching theology on, uh, on LGBT plus topics and, and issues we need to focus on what gay people can say yes to that mm. will be good for them, that will bring goodness to their life, that will honor God, that will bring glory to God. Um, so, yeah. So for me, I, I first I think we should first focus on God's design and wisdom for sexual stewardship for all people. And then ask how that informs how I, a gay person, uh, can thrive. Um uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think personally that I need maybe a, a, a special version of theology for me as a gay person to know what God's best is for me. Um, yeah. 
So, so yeah, I, I don't, I don't focus on yeah. personally. I don't focus on whether or not gay sex is a sin or, or whatever, whether God would bless a gay marriage. I ask God, what is his best for his people? And then I commit mm-hmm. not for anything less. Um, that's yeah. what I yeah. do. Yeah. That reminds me of um, one of the, the more formative books for me in my spiritual journey of reconciling faith and sexuality was Eve Tushnet's book, Gay and Catholic. Um, and one of the winning lines, uh, it's so good. It's so good. Um, but one of the, the, the lines that stuck out to me was, uh, she said, no one has a vocation of no. Mm. Um, everyone has a vocation of yes to something. And so we have to figure out what the yes is, not just the no. So I think that's, yeah, that was really, really helpful, Peter. Yeah, that's, that is really good. Like, I, when you talked about a book, like how this connects to a book that's influential to you, I thought I, I was literally about to talk about the same thing, but I was wondering if we were going to talk about the same book. For me, okay. <laughs> the book that has been, was just so beautifully done for me that helped in this. Um, and, you know, having, ta- having earlier talked about that there aren't many books, I'll love to recommend books that I do know of that are really good. For me, yeah. it was Deborah Hirsch's book, Redeeming Sex. Oh, and, I haven't read that one. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Deborah Hirsch, if you are all listening, please come on this podcast. You are. We love you. We want you to come to this podcast, please. Yes. Plus, she has a sweet accent. Oh, I know. I know. I've heard her (laughs) speak, and I'm like, I'm Australian. Yeah, Australian. Um, I love how she does very much what you're saying is like rather than just focusing, if all we make this focus is on, like, is gay sex bad or is it good or or whatever. Um, we're missing the whole entire thing of really developing what was God's vision for sexuality. And I love that mm. even for Deborah Hirsch, the vision of sexuality is even more than just about who you can have sex with, because her vision of sexuality is that sexuality is how we relate to people, not yeah. just through sex, but through all of our relationships, whether that be through friendship, community, um, and she lays out, you know, sexuality as three parts of sexuality, gender sexuality, social sexuality, and genital sexuality. Gender sexuality, how we understand ourselves as a male or female, social sexuality, mm. all of our interactions, and gen- genital sexuality, obviously, who we have intercourse with. Um, and how each of these then reflect the eternal in different ways and deals with it in a really great, great way of kind of like what you were saying of we have to be understanding how this fits for all people, straight people, queer people, all of this together. Um, because the moment that we focus on one small issue within it, we're losing the vision of the rest of it. Yeah. Yeah. Really good. Um, so I guess then, um, kind of getting into a few more of the details of your talk. Um, and I think, you know, when we were talking about the thing, some things that were brought up by side B people, um, you know, during your talk, you mentioned that no one chooses their sexual orientation, but at the same time that God did not make us gay. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that topic? Like what, it, what, it, what for you does it mean for God not to make us gay, even though we don't choose our sexual orientation? Yeah. Um, so, okay. So to be clear, you know, when I say doesn't, make us gay. What I'm meaning by that word gay is um, having romantic 
sexual same-sex attractions. So it might be more uh, precise for me to say, I don't think God intended for us uh, to have romantic sexual same-sex attractions. He, we were not uh, born with that kind of predetermined by God. Um, so I'm not talking about like gay mm. culture. I'm not saying the gay cult, there's not good things in gay culture. Um, I'm not talking about our capacity to recognize and appreciate beauty regardless of sexual orientation. I think God gives us that. I'm not talking about our desire for same-sex friendship or platonic intimacy. Like God obviously gives us that. Um, you know, also I think it's important to point out that like the consensus among scientists is that both genetic factors and environmental factors contribute to the development of same-sex attraction. That the, the people mm. who don't choose to be gay, but people also aren't born determined to be gay. Like e even the most progressive LGBT plus scientists have been correcting the movement by pointing out that no one is born gay. Uh, no one is born genetically determined to be gay. Um, so, so on that alone, you know, personally, I think we can reject the idea that God makes gay in the womb, that he made us intending for us to experience romantic and sexual same-sex attractions. Um, but, you know, I kind of say this in the talk, like even if we became convinced that sexual orientation is genetically determined, like if some flood of new research outweighed the consistent data we have from the past, you know, decades of uh, sexual orientation change research, even if that were the case, um, that doesn't mean God intended for people to be gay. You know, God's intentions aren't a, a scientific question. They're a theological one. And science can't answer the question of God's intentions because none of us are how God made us to be. None of us are, are born how God first imagined us to be. Uh, we're all corrupted at a genetic level yeah. before birth, formed brokenly in the womb, quickly injured by the broken world we're born into. So then how do we answer that, like the theological question on which science, science can't comment? Well, it, you know, it's my understanding that Romans 1 teaches that same-sex sexual desires are, are unnatural that they're, they're broken, that they're contrary to God's first intentions. So God doesn't intend for anyone to experience same-sex sexual or romantic attractions or engage in those kinds of relationships. But yeah, we don't choose who we're attracted to. So yeah, to be clear as well, like I don't, I don't think God like cursed us with being gay or something like that. I think some people misread Romans <laughs> 1 to think like, oh, these people looked at straight porn. So God punish them by by giving them the gayness right <laughs> that's not how it works either um uh unfortunately yeah. i thought that was how it worked when i was like 10 years old and, and there's unfortunately many clients mm. i've met with that they thought that that's what romans one meant um so that's not how it works either oh, wow um but clearly we're gay right i'm gay that's gay mm. josh is gay we gay um so wait what <laughs> i'm joking so <laughs> At the very least, God allowed it, right? So if it's yeah. not what God intended, yeah. and it's broken, but God allowed it, and it's not his will to change it for the vast majority of people, then what gives? Like, that doesn't seem fair. And, like, for mm -hmm. me, this is where we get into, like, the general question of evil, like, the that territory. Like, why does God allow painful things to happen to any people? Listen, I don't really know. The answer to that question. Many m people much, much smarter than me haven't been able to find the most uh, satisfying enough answers to that question, but I can at least share what's helpful for me. And, and then I'll, I'll quit, ch quit chatting here. Um, You're okay. free to go yeah. on, don't worry. Keep so, going. yeah, don't let us stop so, you. You know, so, okay, so the question of why does God allow painful things happen to innocent people? Uh, you know, generally, I think that God lets painful things happen 
Because in one way or another, all pain is due to the sinful choices of someone. Now, often, it's not due to the sinful choices of ourselves. Often, the pain we experience in our life is due to the sinful choices of others. Recently, or going all the way back to Adam, right? We experience pain because others have sinned. But because God wants our love to mean something, we need to have real choice. But for our capacity to choose to be real, like there have to be consequences. If God just swooped in and undid the consequences of our decisions or the consequences of other people's decisions, our choices wouldn't mean anything. Um, So at least as I understand it, like in order to preserve our capacity to choose, God refrains from protecting us from the consequences of our decisions and the decisions of others often. Usually that's his MO. Okay, so, so then I find this helpful to apply it to my own sexuality, right? I believe romantic and sexual same-sex attractions are broken. And my hunch is I developed same-sex attractions because of generations of sin in the church and in my family and in my own experiences growing up. And, and then this is bore out, borne out in genes and environmental factors. Like, I think I developed same-sex attraction because of the sins of others. So would God have, like, preferred to block the consequences of the sins of others and protect me from the pain this brokenness has caused me? Absolutely. Like, I believe that is what God want, would prefer for me. But I think, like, preserving those people who committed those sins, com- preserving their capacity to have real choice— and humankind's capacity to have real choice is even more important to God because it means our love for each other and our love for God actually means something. So he allowed the consequences of the sins of others to remain. He allowed me to develop same-sex attraction, and it doesn't seem to be his will to, to change anything about that. Now, I know that's not very comforting. Like That's a pretty sucky story. It may be philosophically satisfying, but it's not emotionally satisfying at all. It's really emotionally disturbing. So, you know, so what I hold on to at the end of that for me is, well, I do have promises in Scripture that God seeks to redeem all painful things yeah. for my good and his glory. And I can't explain it all, but I do know yeah. that like a vast majority of all the most beautiful things I've experienced in this life has been in the context of making sense of the fact that I'm gay, making sense of it with other gay people, making sense of it with straight people, making sense of it with my church and with my parents and with my friends. Um, Like I found my life purpose and mission in making sense of my story and helping others make sense of their story and helping the church be a place where the next generation of gay Christian kids don't experience the same pain that I did. So I absolutely see how God is Mm -hmm. making good on this pain for my good and his glory. Um, So anyway, that was a very long winded response to your question. Um, but, but that's what it goes for me. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's a complicated, yeah, it it's is. a complicated topic, you know? So yeah, obviously, sure. uh, cause I think sometimes we, when we get into this conversation about being made gay or, you know, our, the origins of sexuality and all this stuff that we get into so many of these intersection places of deep systematic theology on God's will. Um, and I am not a systematic theologian. I more do. Hebrew studies. So obviously I, I, I know that there's different words for different mm-hmm. kinds of God's will and I, I don't pay attention. Um, and <laughs> I'm also not a Calvinist, so I do not pay attention to that. Um, and so, um, <laughs> but then um, 
also on top of that, we get into science and we get into psychology and all these things. And I, I think sometimes it, it gets very hard because as you said, there's this thing of like, well, God, we are gay. So somehow yeah. God allowed not it. <laughs> and yet he's not surprised yeah. and he could change it if he really wanted to. He can pretty much change anything he wants to. And so he says, no, he's deciding not. So there must be some reason why. And I think I love Becca kind of mentioned this a little bit in one of her talks at Revoice. Um, is that kind of saying God obviously has me being LGBT for a reason, you know? Um, and yet also understanding of the whole entire thing of there are a lot of factors that play into that, whether that's God's will of what has happened versus what his will of what he would intend to happen. Um, and, and I think also we sometimes get into this mindset as modern people um, that I don't think occurred in the mind of people during biblical times um, as the separation of God's intent in genetics versus God's sure, yeah. intent in environment. Because I think sometimes we get into this very big mindset of like, if it happens in your genetics, oh, God, like just ordained it and done versus like, if it happened in an environment, it's like, well, that's that's humans. And obviously there's all of these different factors. And, and I think it's God has his hand over, over all of this in, in some way. And, and we play a part in it, obviously, as you said, you know, our, we play a part in it by, um, by the way that we influence people and we influence other people and our very fallenness influences other people as well. Our brokenness influences others. Yeah. Well, and if I could add one little thing to make sure yeah. that, I, that I don't step in it. Right. The other, the other, another element that just added onto this whole conversation is there's, there's points in, in some of the things I said that seems as if I'm, I'm I'm walking really close to the the like the my, the the ugly pit of side X right to one side of myself mm. or the other, right? and so that's also the trickiness of this right because like clear I don't think I don't think any gay people did anything to make themselves gay yeah I don't think mm. they sinned in any way and that's why they're gay right so I want to be just super 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 clear um, that's also why these these conversations are difficult because uh, even just talking even just denying the idea that we are born gay sounds like a side X thing. Even though today LGBT scientists are saying people aren't born gay, right? Uh, but that sounds like a side X thing. So this, again, the reason why this is so triggering, these conversations are triggering for people is that so many things just remind us of the jargon and the arguments and the phrases that side X yeah. used at a time. And, and they, and people can't really listen to what you're saying because they just get, it, they just get turned off because they hear, a couple of these phrases that that, that, that seem familiar in a yeah. painful way. Yeah, and and I think that I think that's a really good clarification. Thank you for that. Um, because I think that it does get it get, does get freaked out like for many people. Um, but at the same time, like if we're going to acknowledge the sexual fluidity, like pansexuality, the fluidity within bisexuality, asexuality, we're acknowledging that sexuality is much more complex than whether you're straight or gay. It's so much more complex than that. And if we're going to acknowledge that sexuality is much more complex than that, we are definitely acknowledging that it is much more complex than a simple gay gene. Yeah. <laughs> that, sure. I mean, that's just how it is. Yeah. I mean, look at the queer community. If it was simply just a gay gene, we would not have so much fluidity within gender and sexuality represented yeah. within the community. For sure. Peter, something that you really, you did in your talk, 
I thought was really, really helpful. And I think you, you did it just now too, where you, you sort of um, used a couple words and then you define those words very specifically before moving on. So I think in your talk, you, um, you, you defined being gay as experiencing same-sex sexual attraction. And then you defined same-sex attraction as same-sex sexual attraction, just for the purposes of the talk. Um, yeah. I think in, in the side B world, there's a lot, there's a lot of different ways of speaking about these things. And mm-hmm. not everyone uses those words the way you did in that, in that talk. Um, and so that can lead to a lot of miscommunication uh, and misunderstanding, but I thought that was super helpful. But, um, yeah. so with that in mind, uh, I think one of the, the questions that people had about your talk, uh, more specifically was, um, is, is there anything about being gay, uh, that is not a burden, but something beautiful, not mm. like a thorn, but, but more of a flower? Is there something that, um, that we uniquely have as, as queer people, um, that is, is a good thing and not, not just a struggle? Yeah. So, yeah, you and you just you kind of you just stated it. We all have different definitions of how we use these words, and um, precision is important. But maybe it would be great if we were all like at the UN and we all had little translation <laughs> and then anytime someone was thinking, it was just translated into the words they would use to describe that thing. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's up. okay, Peter. I'll be I'll be your quote unquote anger translator. I'll just translate everything you say into my language and then that'll that'll facilitate the whole dialogue i'll just circle around you whenever you speak yeah i mean basically (laughs) what we're talking about is how do we how do we translate an enneagram eight to a person with feelings right how do we like (laughs) (laughs) without getting turned off i think there's a lot of money absolutely figure that out and uh and and you'll you'll be sitting pretty Uh, so to your question sorry um yeah, I, I tend to think that all there is, you know, inherently, uh, innately, universally, uniquely to being gay um, are same-sex attractions. Um, like, I don't think there's some special capacity for friendship or aesthetic sensibility that, like, travels with the gay genes or is part of the gay gene set for all people. Um, I think that most of what we actually experience as being gay is culturally created it's constructed um, and hard earned from the experience of being gay in a certain context. And those things are good and beautiful. Like for example, uh, I do think that side B gay Christians develop a unique capacity for an appreciation of deeper friendship because of our experiences. You know, we're forced mm-hmm. by our circumstances to learn uh, to do friendship better. Um, so is there anything inherently, innately, universal, unique to gay people that existed pre-fall? Uh, you know, we can only really speculate about like pre-fall human existences, what those Mm -hmm. were like, Mm -hmm. but what we do know today is there's not, doesn't seem like there's much more than same sex attraction that is inherent, innate, universal, uniquely gay. Uh, and I don't think that romantic or sexual same sex attractions were pre-fall you know, at least how I define those things. And so, so it seems like there isn't anything <laughs> pre-fall to being gay. Uh, that being said, 
you know, I think some of what you're getting out of your question, and I think what the, the better question is for gay people is what from the gay experience will remain in the new Jerusalem? Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, because ultimately we weren't made for the garden. We weren't made for Eden. We were made for the new heavens and the new earth. We were made for the city. Um, so I think it matters like much more what we will be there than what we would have been in a never fallen garden. Yeah. Um, and, you know, at least as I see, even coming from a more maybe conservative in some ways perspective on these things, um, the, the scars <laughs> from Christ's wounds on the cross could still be seen on his resurrected body. Right. Like these physical signs of our sin that Christ took on those physical signs of our redemption through Christ's sacrifice, they remained because they were a sign of God's glory, not of shame. So I think in the same way, like a Christian who's gay, I think will continue to have an awareness of the fact that they're gay and appreciation of the fact that they were gay in this life. I think they'll continue to have that in the new heavens and the new earth because it was particularly through that experience that God was most glorified for those people. And and particularly through that experience that the most good came to the lives of gay Christians. It's certainly been my story, right? If somehow like I had like gay amnesia when I am in the new heavens and the new earth and I forgot the fact that I was gay or anything to do with gay, you're basically erasing all the best parts of my life, right? Yeah. So, you know, I think where then people though maybe bristle at this is okay, but like, does that mean there'll be division in the new heavens and the new earth? And I think one of the differences between now and the New Jerusalem is right now, while differences in this life bind some together more closely, it divides mm-hmm. from others. What will be beautiful and different about the new heavens and the new earth is, is our awareness of this common experience will continue to bind us to some, but will not divide us from any. Yeah, um, that's really good. Mm-hmm. What yeah. is that remains? I have no idea. Uh, what exactly that is that is redeemed? And it's purified and is, I have no idea. Um, but it makes sense to me that there'd be something. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I really love that you said that, you know, I was talking to um, a side B person and um, I really love what they said is like, you know, many times we try to emphasize to straight Christians, you know, marriage is not going to be in, 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 you know, the new Jerusalem. So you're going to be like me. And he's like, but also we have to remember that singleness is not going to remain in the new Jerusalem for the very reason of the very word single. No one is going to be independent. We are all going to be Mm. disconnected. So singleness and marriage are both going to be wasted away in the new Jerusalem because no one's going to be their own unit separate from everyone else. We will all be equally joined together as the body of Christ and therefore joined to our groom mm. in a way that we can't understand at this moment because we have that capacity to be con- more connected to some than to others. And it's just something that doesn't seem like it's going to be that way in the heaven. I'd never really thought about it that way. It's like, wow, so we we really won't be single using that term in the sense of being divided from other people the same way we won't be married, elevating one relationship over the others. Um we're going to have this unique bond where all people bringing, as you said, our experiences. Uh, and I love what you said about that because it's really important. We we cannot focus on Eden, but focusing on the New Jerusalem because there are things from this world that weren't in Eden that are going to be taken into the New Jerusalem. We see that in Revelation. 
we mm. see that true. And, and, and I will admit as someone who like, for me, many times thinking about being LGBT and thinking about that's relationship to eat that relationship to Eden versus the New Jerusalem, it's hard for me sometimes because mm. I see so much beauty from my experience as an LGBT person that it's, yeah. it's hard to think about that really in relationship to Eden, whether or not that there is some connection there. But I definitely do love what you were saying is that there are without a doubt parts of our experiences because they are the parts of our experiences that draw us to God, regardless of whether they were in Eden, will be carried over into the New Jerusalem because it's it's the very part of our walk that drew us yeah. towards him. I yeah. I do have to say, sometimes it's uncomfortable for me yeah. to think about like, oh, well, you know, I I I was fascinated in Greg Cole's book when he kind of theorized about this idea of like, would LGBT people have been different than straight people in the garden had there never been a fall? Um, and yeah. that fascinated me. I do not have theological grounds for it, obviously, because we don't have anything from it. <laughs> yeah. But um, I, I think we all cling to this idea of wanting to know that there is something of our, of our experience that comes from God's intent. But regardless of what God's intent was, yeah. God definitely uses our experiences and, and our lives to draw us to him. Yeah, I think um, side, B, side B land, side B people can, can disagree on um, how to frame what parts of our experience come, quote unquote, from mm -hmm. Eden. But I think regardless, it's really helpful to shift our perspective to the New Jerusalem because the New Jerusalem is going to be better <laughs> than yeah. the garden. Yep. Um, we're, we're not we're not having we're not sort of doing a return to the to the, the goodness of Eden. We're moving forward to an even greater goodness. Um, we we go from a garden to a city. So I think that's just such a helpful shift, paradigm shift. Yeah. Because um, we can we can have disagreements Absolutely. about Eden. Um, I think by and large, a lot of us agree on some of the basics, but some of the more superficial mm -hmm. things we can. We can articulate things differently, but yeah, that shift is is just really yeah. helpful. Mm. Yeah, I think that's good, and I, I I think that's really good. And something I want to share with everyone listening is, you know, all of y'all out there listening, you know, one of the biggest things that we do on this podcast is we acknowledge the fact that there are there are things that side B people have different perspectives on, whether it comes to theology, whether it comes to how we live out our lives, but there is a core that we agree on. And so there may be parts of this conversation that you may not agree with. And that's part of these conversations because we have to have discussions, you know, um, and it's important to continue. Dialogue. Peter and I disagree all the time. <laughs> and we, <laughs> it's fun. It's great. Um, it is fun. He's, he's my light and my life, but we also, are you? <laughs> we, and y'all, if anyone out there does not have a family where you don't disagree, please text me because I want to know how that happened. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Please explain to me how that works. Yeah. Um, well, then one last question before we go is, you know, another in another part of the talk, you addressed the argument of there being bad mm -hmm. fruit on the traditional um, theology. Uh, and you said one of the main bad fruits of affirming theology is that it can be a slippery slope to losing faith. And I know that this was also a part of tension for some people, side B people listening and, and obviously affirming people listening. Uh -huh. um, but 
What would you say to those who disagree with that statement? Yeah, so I uh, I emphasized this in the talk, but I'll say I think it's good to say here again that like this has not been everyone's experience. Um, so I'm not claiming to know what what has been true for all people. Um, and I also like, while I do think it is a slippery slope, uh, I, I wish it wasn't a slippery slope. Like I wish I saw uh, side A gay Christians holding on to their faiths, thriving in their relationships with God uh, and um, in kind of, uh, you know, gay marriages so much that like I questioned whether side B is really how God thinks about sexual ethics. Like I wish that was the case um, because I want good things for my gay Christian friends who have a progressive sexual yeah. ethic. But that hasn't been my consistent experience. And and every time I share about this slippery slope that I see, including sharing at Revoice over and over and again, I get gay and straight people who connect with me afterwards and say, oh, I've seen that too. And it makes me cry. And I also feel like I'm not allowed to say it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's tricky, right? You know, to, to give you just like one concrete example, for example, um, you know, in college, um, I knew about uh, 20 uh, gay Christian guys in my Christian fraternity. And of those, uh, 13 are still Christian and they are side B. Um, five of those went side A and are professing, are professing atheists uh, now. One, I'm not sure where he's at. And then the last one um, is side A and com- professes to be a Christian. Uh, but if I asked him whether he would kind of profess a hor- historical understanding of the Nicene Creed and reject anything mutually exclusive with the Nicene, Nicene Creed, uh, he would not be willing to do mm-hmm. that. Um, mm-hmm. Now, that's just 20 people in one space, right? Um, I know that to make this claim most robustly, I would need a standardized survey of a thousand random gay Christians, right? I don't have that. Um, but six out of six moving from side A to non-Christian. And 13 out of 14, at least, staying side B and remaining Christian. Like, that's, that's meaningful evidence. Uh, that's, that's why I'm so convinced of this. Um, that's why it's powerful for me. And, and when I talk to people, that's, that's not inconsistent with other people's experiences. But I, I want to add one, one other thing um, that's a little bit mm-hmm. more personal about why I'm convinced of a traditional sexual ethic. And um, mm-hmm. I don't always include this because over the past seven years of a full-time ministry, I realized that it can um, hurt me to use my own story yeah. as a prop, mm. particularly if mm-hmm. the audience is straight. Um, it can feel like I'm, I'm tokenizing myself, and that's yeah. not good for me. Um, but because I know the, the audience of this podcast is mostly queer, I think it's something good for me to share here. It's what's been also really convincing for me um, has been the bad fruit of my own experiences with a sexual ethic. Um, mm. like I felt like I heard from the enemy for years and years and years that, gosh, if you just had a romantic relationship with a man, everything would be better. If you just had a sexual relationship with a man, everything would be better. And I'd finally have everything I needed. Um, and I wish I could have just trusted God that the enemy's lies were lies. But I couldn't. Like I had to test them for myself. And I made plenty of mistakes. Um, and my own experiences have been that romantic and sexual relationships with men were not everything I hoped that they would be. Like they were painful. They were not as good as promised. Um, and while I've not experienced everything under the sun, like I cannot say authoritatively that I know from experience that nothing would satisfy me. I can't say that. But one experience is just about the clearest uh, contrast between sin and beauty that I could ask for. 
when I was in a particularly dark place in college, I was connecting romantically, sexually with another guy. Uh, and, and despite the fact that I was doing the things that movies told me would make me feel more connected and loved and known than anything else, I felt so alone. And, and then after we stopped, the reality of what we had just done set in. And we sat there uh, on the floor, leaning against the wall, shoulder to shoulder. And we started crying. Both of us were crying. And mixed in with the crying, we both verbalized what we were feeling. We shared how empty both of us felt, how lonely we felt, how messed up this world was and disconnected from God we felt, how, how confused we were that God would let us be this way and yet connections like we just shared didn't feel right. And, and I didn't feel lonely anymore. Mm. I didn't, suddenly I didn't feel disconnected anymore. Uh, you see the, the romantic and, and sexual connections that the enemy promised would satisfy me while well, those failed. But then in stark contrast to that, the two of us uh, confessing to each other and crying out to God together satisfied us more beautiful, satisfied us and, and, and felt more beautifully intimate than anything we had mm. shared before. Mm. Um, so yeah, even if I could convince myself logically of a progressive sexual ethic, even if you know, that fear that adopting a progressive sexual ethic might lead to someone losing their faith. Even if we could dismiss that, like personally, I couldn't get past the bad fruit I've seen personally in my own life. Um, I don't share that to say that like every gay person out there should go make lots of mistakes to convince themselves about traditional sexual ethic. I wish I hadn't made the mistakes I did. I, I, I plead with like friends and counseling clients to, to learn from my mistakes and not have to test that themselves. Yeah. But, but yeah, that's, that's been what's convincing for me. Yeah. I think that's, that's really helpful context for, for that section of your talk. I know um, we've talked a little bit about this behind the scenes, but I haven't exactly had the same experience in talking with my, my side A friends. Um, I know several of them have had have really um, strong spiritual lives. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely understand like moving from from side B to uh, an affirming position on on same sex sexual activity, there's a lot of deconstruction that happens. Mm -hmm. um, and so something that that struck me as you were talking, um, in addition to the point you were making about um, there being possibly bad fruit, is um, oftentimes I think side B people, when a friend goes side A, can sort of take several steps back and just sort of disengage <laughs> um and so the unfortunate side effect of that is that side a people are suddenly left without the christian community that they need um and it sort of contributes to um feeling like faith has just radically shifted for them yeah. so and thinking about my my friendship with um some of my side a friends who i love dearly i've just been so um, blessed to continue a relationship with them, even though we don't see eye to eye on that yeah. anymore. Yeah, it's this the slippery slope argument is an interesting one for me because I will admit I've had friendships with people on both sides of this per, like per, like situation. Like I have friends who are affirming who have sometimes I feel like stronger faith than I do, and mm. then I will have friends who, in the process of deconstructing 
you know, their faith related to sexuality, uh, deconstruct their faith entirely. And mm. I remember even one time with one friend who I had like been arguing on their behalf against the slippery soak argument. And then they ended up deciding that they were no longer Christian, even going to them and being like, I have been arguing for you and you are proving <laughs> the point that I'm trying not to argue against. And being very frustrated with them. Like, I'm here trying to support you and you're not helping me. <laughs> yeah. And um, I think in general, I'm I'm just not a fan of slippery soak arguments. And I don't think it's about this specifically. It's about like, I've had people argue the slippery slope argument about side A, side B sure. being to side A. And um, the slippery soap argument of people saying celibate partnerships leading to affirming or like all these different kinds of things where I'm like, no, I don't, I don't necessarily see that. And so I personally, I think just in general in arguments, try to stay away from, uh, from slippery slope arguments, but I do understand what you're saying. Cause I have had similar experiences with what you are conveying Peter. And I want to say thank you so much for sharing about your personal, you know, experience, because yeah. I think it's something that is really, really great for people to hear because obviously it, I, I think our experiences play such an important role in, in what leads us to where we are at, you know? Um, and there was something else I was going to say and I can't remember, but yeah. <laughs> um, I, 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 oh, and I, I want I guess I also wanted to say this and if you all have any pushback on this, please feel free to do so. Um, I wanted to also make room for any side B people listening that um, I, I think it is important to acknowledge that there are some side B people that separate the morality of romantic attractions and sexual attractions because, and I'm not saying that I necessarily have solidified thoughts on that. Um, I just know that that is something that is real for some side sure. B people. And, and I mean, honestly, I can, ex I can share from my own life of, of someone who has been in um, a period of committed relationship in an affirming relationship. And sometimes it's hard when you come from a, from having a relationship where there was great things shared in a romantic sense and then trying to make sense of once your theology changes going, wait, so it's bad, but I had a really good experience mm. and um, trying to make sense then of how something that you experienced so great can all of a sudden be maybe yeah. not so great according to the theology that yeah. you hold. And so I, I think with that, I just, not that we need to go into that yeah. discussion because I know that that's another tenuous point that can lead into a whole rabbit trail of talks. But I also wanted to acknowledge for anyone listening that there is that understanding that happens for some people. And, um, but if you guys have any thoughts on that, we feel free to share. Uh, no, no I do. Yeah, important conversation, definitely worth, <laughs> worth some time when it can be addressed thoroughly. Uh, to your point of, yeah. you know, even, you know, setting aside people's um, beliefs about romance, even if the kind of same-sex sexual aspect of of a, of a same-sex relationship isn't God's best, like that's not to say that all of the rest there wasn't beauty there. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and with with any of these people that I've uh, unfortunately crossed boundaries with and and sinned against myself and sinned against them in that 
a lot of them, those began as friendships that were really awesome. Like I, um, I love these men in all the, mm-hmm. the purest and best ways. And so that's some of the reasons why the sin, the, the sin that I committed, the sins that they committed were so painful because the enemy succeeded in convincing me to spoil something so good. And for most of those people that I crossed boundaries with, for all of them, it at least wounded the friendship deeply. And for most of them in a way that could never be repaired. So yeah, I, I good, there, there's good in those relationships. Um, and in some ways that's why I feel so strongly about uh, traditional sexual ethic and, and avoiding uh, these things that God says is not best for us is because I don't want to yeah. ruin what's so good and beautiful. I want to keep it. Absolutely. So, yeah, I agree with that 100%. Well, that is it for the episode today. Thank you so much for listening. But if you really love this and you want to hear more, we actually continue the conversation for a bonus episode on our Patreon page. So if you're interested in hearing more as we talk with Peter, go ahead, go to patreon.com slash lifeonsideb, or you can go to our website, lifeonsideb.com and find a link there and subscribe and continue listening. We honestly went on with a lot of great stuff on mixed orientation marriage and celibacy in the church and all of that good stuff. So it was a lot of fun. I want to thank again to Peter uh, for joining us and Grant as the co-host, as always, was amazing. Um, Also, you guys remember, today is the last day to listen to Revoice Talks. So if you haven't yet, go ahead and take the chance to take a listen. Uh, It's totally, totally worth it and really, really good. And if you are interested in getting in touch with Peter, his contact information will be in the show notes. Thanks again, everyone, and we'll see you in the next episode. Bye.